we're in the second condition. This is be obedient, and it is chapter 3, 10 through 29. In this section, John develops the second condition that those who are children of Yahweh are obedient. 1 John 3, 10 through 12 are transitional sentences between the theme of renouncing sin in the previous section and the theme of obedience in the current section. John uses the phrases children of the devil and who are of the evil one as transitional phrases. Chapter 3, verse 10. So first he was talking about renouncing sin. And now that he's talked about renouncing sin, he's saying, by this, renouncing sin, the children of God and the children of the devil are to reveal. Everyone who does not practice righteousness, the one who does not love his fellow Christian, is not of God. By this, you can tell whether someone is a child of the devil or whether they belong to God. They do not have fellowship with Christians and they are not of God. Practice righteousness. They're continually pursuing a right standing with God. And we talked about that, the the Mosaic Law earlier, uh, the idea that the only way that you can be in the presence of God in fellowship with him in the tabernacle or in Christ is if you are right before God. And to be right before God is to live and act and think righteously. But because no one can do that, then we go to the sacrificial system or we go to the blood of Jesus Christ. And so does this practice righteousness that John is talking about, the pursuing a right standing with God. And when you're not right with God, you may immediately repent. And I'll keep going back to that over and over again because that is the greater context of what John is talking about. Practice righteousness also communicates this is continuous action. It's not that you're, you're right before God and then you're done. It's that you continue to do this. And this implies the continual submission to the Holy Spirit, the continual being transformed by the renewing of your mind, that kind of stuff that goes on. The absence of righteous behavior in a life indicates the absence of intimacy with God. Likewise, the absence of love for one's Christian brother shows that the individual who does not love has little fellowship with God. Love is the most important particular manifestation of righteous behavior. In order to have intimacy, one has to love God and one has to love others. And we know this. This is true of relationships and on a human level and all that kind of stuff. So verse 11. For this is the gospel message, the good news, that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not like Cain, who was of the evil one and who brutally murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil, but his brothers were righteous. The heart of the gospel is love. Love. That is the heart of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Therefore, for you to have the gospel in you means that you will love sacrificially like God. And that will be a later condition that we'll go through in chapter 4. We love. He says, anyone who acts like Cain is none of the, not of a Christian, not of God not acting like, not reflecting it. And so Cain showed that he was of the evil one by the fact that he was willing to murder his own brother. He was, all he cared about was his own life. All he cared about is wanting God's approval through his works and through his actions. And when he saw somebody else who was getting God's approval, he was jealous of that and he decided to get rid of him. And so what motivated Cain was jealousy. Jealousy. He wanted to make his own law create his own path and when it didn't work out for him and he saw somebody following God's path and it was working out for them then he decided to eliminate them and that shows that he did not belong to God anyone who chooses to follow their own path and then becomes jealous of other people and tries to eliminate them through their reputation or murdering them or whatever that is of the evil one that is of the evil one Now, I know John is not saying all that making yourself law and all that kind of stuff and being jealous and all that kind of stuff, but by referencing Cain, he's referencing the entire context of the story. You can't say, like, remember Abraham Lincoln, and you're like, whoa, what do you mean? Like, freeing the slave? Oh, no, I don't care about that. Like, no, 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 no. 
if I'm referring to Abraham Lincoln, I'm referring to him in his entirety, his entire story, and everything that he did, and everything he stood for, and everything he accomplished. All John has to do is reference Cain, and you should immediately remember all that, that he was trying to do his own path. God didn't like that. God liked Abel, who was following God, and Cain was jealous of that and decided to eliminate him. And that is evil. That is evil. And so he starts there with murder. Obviously, murdering your own brother is not of God. Obviously, that is not love. Obviously, that's not fellowship with God. That's where he starts. Therefore, do not be surprised. Oh, going back to a little bit. Notice that it also says, but his brother's actions were righteous. Yet he died. John is not promising you that you will have a happy-go-lucky life if you pursue and practice righteousness. He's not promising that everything will work out for you. What he's promising is you is that you will have fellowship with God. And if your practicing righteousness leads to your death through persecution or whatever, or in their case, obviously the government coming after you in that time period, then God promises eternal life for those who practice righteousness in the blood of Jesus Christ. And you will have fellowship with God for all eternity. Where you will go to be in his presence and have fellowship with him. And then eventually you will experience the resurrection and continue to have fellowship with him. So he's not promising you a happy-go-lucky life. He's promising you fellowship. Intimate connection with God. Contentment, satisfaction, Peace, joy, hope, love that passes all understanding. That's what he's promising you. Verse 13, Therefore do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have crossed over from death to life because we love our fellow Christians. The one who does not love remains in death. And everyone who hates his fellow Christian is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So don't be surprised when the world hates you. Don't be surprised if there are other people today in your own life that are like Cain and they're forming their own path and you're following righteousness and it's not working out for them and it's working out for you and then they become jealous and they begin to hate you. And they, they go after your reputation. They just try to make your life miserable. They mock you or maybe they even physically eliminate you. Do not be surprised by that. Okay, remember Jesus says, do not be surprised if the world hates you because they first hated me. He said that in the Gospel of John. And so John says, don't be surprised that this is happening. Don't be surprised that the false teachers turn on you and they hate you. Don't be surprised that the Roman Empire hates you. This is not that. And we've talked about this earlier too, is that the whole idea is that if you're truly having fellowship with God, then the benefits and the the intimacy that you have from that will outshine any desire with fellowship with the world. That yes, we'll always be attracted to the world to a certain extent because we have a sin nature. But the idea is that the more that we're in Christ and the more that we're in fellowship with him, the more that the world begins to pale in comparison and the less of a hold that it begins to have on us. And it will never probably ever go away, but you can dim that hold down majorly as you pursue Christ. And so don't be surprised. We know that we have crossed over from death to life because we love our fellow Christians. We know that there's something different in us. That that jealousy should not dominate us as much. That desire to be a part of the world should not be dominating as much. That desire to um, attack other people or ruin them or, or exclude them or ignore them because we've crossed over. We've crossed over into fellowship with God and something else should be taking a hold of us. And those are the ones who do not remain in death or do not remain in love remain in death. Everyone who hates his fellow Christian is a murderer and you know that no Christian is a murderer and you know, sorry, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So now he starts with the obvious. Like if you murder people physically, you're definitely not of God. But now he goes, but even if you hate your fellow Christian, that's the same thing as being a murderer like Cain. That whole phrase, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me, is the biggest little crap I've ever heard. 
When you break bones, for those who are sprained ankles or broken bones or sliced open your body through cuts or whatever, you have healed. And maybe you had some kind of a fall where the ache is still there in your hip, like usually hip, knees, and necks and that kind of stuff. But overall, that doesn't affect you anymore. No broken bones really affect you. No cuts really affect you in any kind of way. And even if they do, they're minor and only when it's going to rain, right? Or when you've had a bad night's sleep. And, I, and don't get me wrong, I know some of you have chronic pain and all that kind of stuff. I'm not trying to diminish that. But even those who have chronic pain, that is nothing compared to the things that were said to you as a kid or growing up, right? Those are the things that we still need therapy for, okay? Those are the things, and if, even if you're not in therapy, you still need therapy for it, right? I mean, those are the things that stick with you, the, the, the things that your parents said to you over and over again as they criticize you or, or the things that the kids at school said or, or constantly being left alone and ignored or whatever. All those things, those stay with us, and they form what a clinical psychologist by the name of Jeffrey Young calls schemas, false lies that just keep circulating in our brain over and over again and affect how we relate and connect to other people. And so that stays with you. And so what he's saying is, look, there are some things that are worthless than death, and that is the destruction of your self-esteem. That is the destruction of your sense of belonging and acceptance with this group or that group. And, and when you go after other Christians and, and you ignore them, which could be just as hurtful as saying things and doing things to them, then this is no different than murdering their self-esteem or murdering their reputation or murdering their self, a sense of self-worth. And we know that we have been crippled from doing things or having the courage or the confidence because of the things that have been said to us or the way that we are treated. And not just that. That ruins your fellowship with God, too. So if, like, if I come up to you and I say, hey, like, I really love you, and I love hanging out with you and being friends with you and all that kind of stuff, but I cannot stand your kids. I hate them. And I don't want anything to do with them anymore. And they're like, you, that you'd be offended, right? Or your nephews or nieces or grandchildren or whatever it is, right? You would be greatly offended if I said that. And if, and if you got upset with me, I said, no, 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 you don't understand. I love you. It's just your kids I hate. Why are you so upset? And they'd be like, because they're a part of me. They're the most important thing to me. I, I sacrifice and live and die for them. And, and to then hate that is to hate me, right? And it's the same thing. It's like if you have this hatred towards people, even if it's only in your mind and it never, ever comes out on people, God sees all those thoughts. And as you're hating on his children and he sees all those thoughts, then that's going to ruin your fellowship with him. He's not going to be like, yeah, but we can still be best buds even though you hate everyone in the church or hate this group of people in the church. I'll just, no, he sees all that. And that affects him. Now, we do know that eventually thoughts become actions. Give enough time. Some thoughts only take a couple of weeks to become actions, some years, but eventually thoughts become actions. But even if they never did, it's still in your head, and God sees it, and it's going to affect your fellowship with him. I get too. Remember, this is wisdom literature. So John's like, if you hate any brother, you're not of God, and you're of the devil, and you have no salvation, you have no fellowship. And you have to be perfectly loving everybody all the time. You're like, oh, okay. Some of you have been really wrong and really betrayed by people. And, and that's not something you can just be like, okay, God told me love and forgive. Love, forgive, all done. Flip, switch, flipped, all good now. Like, right? That, that's, that's where the wisdom literature doesn't cover that. That's where the wisdom literature doesn't cover that. So John acknowledges that, that there are some people that have been hurt so wrong and or so repetitively that they can't get rid of that anger right off the bat. But once again... It's the pursuing, the repentance. And so if there is someone who's wronged you, you can still be like, God, I'm having a hard time with this. I, there's so much rage in me against that person. There's so much hurt. There's so much like, I just can't. So I shut down when they come around me. But I don't want to be like that. I don't want that between me and them. I don't want that between me and you. And I don't want that in my life. And I don't want what fruit that produces. 
And so every day you get on your knees, so speaking, you surrender to the God, and you ask him to give you the ability. That's practicing righteousness. That's just as much practicing righteousness as having no hatred at all. And, and that's what John is calling you to, is that continuous going to the blood of Christ. Yes, I do have some hatred in me, and I do have some anger issues with this person, but thank God I have an advocate in Jesus Christ, and I can go to him and confess my sins because his blood will atone for me. And I'll keep doing that. And eventually over time, if you've ever experienced that, the resentment gets a little less. The fist, the fist clinches a little less when they walk in the room. And then eventually, you just don't really think about them. And eventually, the real mark is when emotions do not change when they come into your presence. And that will happen gradually over time. And everybody's different. And so that's what John's talking about. The wisdom literature just says this should not be in you. But the narratives of the Bible say, but yet that is in you sometimes, but you should be moved in a direction where it is going away. It is going away. Remember, none of us are going to be face-to-face perfectly righteous in the presence of God in this life. But what we can do is at least make every effort to be faced towards him and moving towards him and not with our backs to him or moving away from him. And as long as we are oriented towards him and moving that way, Christ-centered and heaven-oriented, then that is all the Father asks for us. That's all he asks from us. But what he's saying here is don't just think that a literal obedience to the Mosaic law is enough for fellowship. The heart of the law was love. And that murder also includes your hatred. It also includes the hatred that you have for people or the dislike or the constant overly frustration with them, however you want to put it. So he says that no murder has eternal life residing in him, meaning no one who says, I'm going to hold on to this, I'm going to pursue it, I'm going to nurture it, or I'm not going to do anything to diminish it, and I'm going to justify what I have. That person does not have the eternal life in them. If there's no Holy Spirit convicting you, if there's no Holy Spirit saying that's not cool, if there's no Holy Spirit... um, convicting or rebuking or urging or prodding you, then that is a, a sign that there may be no eternal life in you. There may be no eternal life in you. We have come to know love by this, verse 16, that Jesus has laid down his life for us. Thus we ought to lay down our lives for our fellow Christians. Flip side, we know love by the fact that Christ died for us, why we hated him, why we nailed him to the cross, why we mocked him, why we stabbed him with a spear. He loved us. He loved us. This is how we've come to know love. This is our example of love. The first assurance in this section, not the first assurance of our salvation in the entire book, of First John. But the first assurance of our salvation in this section is that new birth is that we love and care about people in a way that we have never done before. The first assurance is that when you begin to notice this desire to actually live at peace with people, you begin to notice this desire to begin to want to forgive people and let things go, when you begin to notice that you begin to serve people and love for them or pray for them or think about them in a way that you haven't before. And, and that begins to then grow as you walk through Christ, with Christ over time. Because people who are not in God don't really care about people in a sacrificial love. Now don't get me wrong. The world is capable of love. The world is capable of altruistic behavior and all that kind of stuff. But not like this. Usually even then, we're still wanting, what, what do I get out of this? What do I get out of this? Even as a parent, the, probably the closest love, unconditional love that you get is a parent for their child. And, 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 and even then, that love is, I mean, I don't really like 
care about little kids that much, okay? Most people are like, hey, do you want to hold my baby? I'll be like, why, okay? Or and little toddlers like are kind of annoying. They're cute at a distance and that kind of stuff. And 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 then when I was substitute teaching kindergarten, like 30 needy kids was just too much. Like after a few weeks, I was like, I'm done, never again. Like um, this is just not cool. So and God bless the people who are gifted and called to that. There's something beautiful inside of you that I don't have. But um, so I was a little worried when I had my first kids. But when Natasha was born, it was like the switch flipped in me and like this overwhelming love that I never had for any other pudgy Michelin boy or girl ever before still like came into me. But at the same time, even with all the unconditional love, there's still times I just feel like I want to run away. I can't do anymore. I've had enough. Okay. And, and yet, because there's still a part of me is like, what am I getting out of this? I want to, I need to feel good all the time. That I need to always be seeing the fruits and the benefits in my life all the time, right? That even as a believer of the Holy Spirit, there's still that part of me that, yes, I have this unconditional, altruistic love for my children, that I'd be willing to do anything for them, and the Holy Spirit's in me at the same time, nurturing that. And yet there's still times that I feel like this isn't worth it anymore. I can't do this anymore. This isn't fun. It's not easy. And the and this is what he's talking about, is the true believer starts feeling that less and less. And even for their non-children, even for the people of the world. And only the believer with the Holy Spirit can truly say, I am really, truly willing to sacrifice everything and gain nothing just to see your life benefit, to see you thrive. The world is not capable of that love. They're capable of love but they're not capable of that love. And they might argue all that they went up and down, but I've got lots of historical records and lots of experience to say otherwise. Yet the believer, the believer has this growing in them. And the believer sees the model of Christ and says, that's scary. That's what I want to be like. I want to be like Christ. And that is the first mark of assurance for John here, is that this true sacrificial love for other believers begins to grow in you. It begins to grow in you. The real test of this is when you open the door for somebody and they treat you like crap and you're still willing to do it again. The real test is when you've worked really hard in a ministry at church and they, the pastor gets up in front and thanks all the people who helped out and they forgot your name and you don't care. It doesn't bother you, right? You don't think, what? He forgot me? I was there too. That thought never entered your mind, okay? That's the real test, is when people forget that you actually served and helped and you don't care. Or that you care a little bit less this year than you did last year. Right? Because that's the goal. Nobody can flip the switch like that. You just you realize it doesn't bother you as much last year as this year when people forgot you. Or it doesn't quite make you feel like, well, I'll never do that again for you when they treat you like crap like it did last year. It doesn't bother you as much, right? And I think that's what John means, is that there's something that begins to grow in you. And when people forget you or people mistreat you, it just doesn't bother you as much this year as it did last year because you're starting to become like Christ. The one who is willing to lay it all down on the ground and got nothing in return, at least in this physical life. Now that doesn't mean there's no reward, remember? Because he, even though Christ was losing everything on the cross, his relationship with God for those three days, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? That's probably the worst death he ever experienced. I mean, the cross is the worst death anybody could ever experience. And he did experience that as a human, but probably paled in comparison from being cut off from the Father, a part of the Trinity. There was no reward in that moment. Yet there was a reward in the fact that he was vindicated and resurrected, and now we as children can be in the presence of him for all eternity. John's not saying that there's never ever a reward there is a reward. It's fellowship with God. It's fellowship with other believers. But he's saying that you don't do it for that. You don't do it 
for this earthly reward. You don't do it to feel good. You do it for them knowing that it creates fellowship. And that's the tension. I don't like it when Christians make it sound like, well, you should never do it. The, the, the idea for reward should never enter your mind. It's like, no, 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 no. I, I am doing this to draw, like, right? Like, I, I'm married and I pursue a relationship with my wife because I want greater intimacy with her. If I didn't get any more intimacy from, with from her, then, yeah, what, what is the point? Or, or if she didn't, like, you're going to say, well, okay, but you're doing it to make her a better person, right? Yeah, but what if she doesn't ever become a better person? What's the point? If Jesus was going to die on the cross and it wouldn't save one person in the world, what was the point? If Jesus dies on the cross and would have no greater fellowship with anybody for all eternity, what's the point? There is a reward. The reward is fellowship with God and others. But at the same time, you're not doing it just so that you can feel good about yourself and your pride or look at me and how I did or, or I'm so lonely and I just desperately need somebody in my life to make me feel good and to make me feel not empty anymore, right? And, and that's the hard one. And that's why we had to go to Psalm 139 when we say, Search me, O God, and know my heart and test me and know my anxious thoughts and lead me and see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting, right? That's where we go before him and say, I want fellowship with you more than anything. Yet I know there's a part of me who also wants to feel good. And I'm also doing this just so that I don't feel alone. And I'm doing this because of what it does for me and my image and my feelings and that kind of stuff. And yet there's somewhere in the middle where those two kind of slightly overlap. And I don't know where that is, but you do know, Holy Spirit. And so I give myself to you. Does that make sense? And so, yes, we do this for reward. The Bible promises rewards over and over again. But they're not the rewards of, like, just what I'm going to get out of it. And that, that's the tension. That's the tension in Christianity. But only, only the Holy Spirit can lead us in that right path. Verse 17. But whoever has the world's possessions and sees his fellow Christian in need and shuts off his compassion against him, how can the love of God reside in such a person? Now John really twists it, right? First, anyone who is willing to kill their own brother, they're not of God. And you're like, okay, haven't done that. Check, check. Very good, right? Then he says, yeah, but also, the one who has hatred or resentment in their heart and their mind against other people, and they, they nurture that, and they don't do anything to reconcile it or heal or try to forgive it, you also are like Cain and the evil one, and there's no salvation in you. You're like, oh, okay, okay, I, I'm working on that one. I get that one. That makes sense. That hurts a little bit more. There's some people that it's hard just to not like, ah. Oh. Now John says, if you see anyone in need and you have the means to help them and yet you pass them by, you do not have fellowship of God. And you're like, oh gosh, that one hurts. That one really hurts. How many times have I seen people and I just thought, I'm too busy. I there was this really old woman who I passed her a couple times on the way home years ago, and she walked with a cane, and she had difficulty walking, and, 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 and a couple times I passed her, like she was in different parts of the service road, so it became obvious over time. Like I, My first time was like, oh, like I, I had to get home, or this is a strange woman, I don't want to be in a car with another woman, and all that kind of stuff, right? And then the second time I thought, well, I, I, I got to get home, my wife is like about ready to leave, and the kids are all by themselves, like, and every time I had these excuses, right? just how inconvenient it was. And, and as, after time goes by of seeing her, not every single day, just this day here and that day, it became obvious that the different times I saw her on the service road, she was walking a very far distance to get home. So I drove by, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit just hit me hard, like, this is one too many times. <laughs> okay, right? Like, you need to stop. And I felt guilty every time. And so this time I drove by, and I just stopped I put it in reverse, and I sped by, or sped backwards, and then I leaned over and opened the door, and I said, can I give you a ride? 
And she was so thankful. And it was into the apartment complex, and she got off the bus, but the bus is like really far away, and she had to walk down this thing. And, and it just, there was this sense of like, thank God for the second chances of God. Thank God for that eventually that worked in my heart and something changed. Thank God that it didn't end up becoming that I never stopped. I never stopped. And I just remember feeling so good, not because I did it and like, look at me. What I really felt so good about was like, I didn't ignore it again. And that I was a little bit closer to God. I experienced a little bit more. And we had a great conversation in the car and all this kind of stuff. And, and I picked her up a couple more times and then never, ever really, my path never crossed with her ever again in that kind of sense. Because that was at a time that I wasn't coming home at a consistent time. Um, but I just remember thinking, like, I haven't turned this off completely. And there's other times, too, um, where... Like, God has given me second chances, and I've been able to step into it and do things. And the hope is that I pass by fewer times as time goes on. And I see that person. And especially as an introvert, when I, sometimes you know when the thought comes from God when it's not something you would do and it's biblical. There's lots of thoughts that come to your head, and sometimes you're like, that is nothing I've ever thought of before, and that is evil. So, like that's, like, that's probably some demonic temptation, right? And there's other times you're like, oh, I have never had that thought before and never would have that thought. And it's so loving and so righteous <laughs> that it must be from God, but it completely violates my personality. And that's usually anytime the Holy Spirit says, go talk to somebody that you don't know, that is definitely the Holy Spirit because it is not me. As an introvert, that thought never enters my mind. <laughs> talk to people I don't know? Heck no. That's not my own natural thought. And whenever I feel that or hear that, it's like, okay, I got I to gotta do that. Like, I got to do that. This is the Holy Spirit pursuing you. He says, when you see people, and you're capable, and that's the cool thing. Like, he just says, when you're capable, you have the resources, the time, the energy, or the money to be able to take care of them. Or sometimes it's just the ability to point them somewhere else. Sometimes it's like, I can't help you, but I know people who can. Can I help you get there? Can I help you find them? That kind of stuff. And, and in this day and age, we are all capable of that. We're all capable of saying, look, I don't have anything for you right now, but I can take you somewhere where they can provide for you. Or I can point you to someone who can provide for you. Or I will get back to you on that. We are in a day and age where we may not have all those resources, but we're within touch of lots of people who have those resources. And so this is what he's pushing you to. This is the challenge. This is the high bar. Point is not just to live a life of words, but of action as well. But of action as well. Verse 18. Little children, as in the entire congregation, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And by this we will know that we are of the truth and will convince our conscience in this presence that if our conscience condemns us, that God is greater than our conscience and knows all things. The second assurance of our new birth or our salvation with God is our prayer life. By this, in verse 19, refers to the truth that John has referred to in 1 John three eleven through 18. And that is the idea, by this, this love, this sacrificial love of God, by this, we know that when we don't do these things and our conscience convicts us that God is greater than that. That God is able to transform you. That we have the Holy Spirit that we can pray to. We have the Holy Spirit who can say, Dear God, help me with my unbelief. Dear God, help me with my lack of love. Dear God, help me with my distracted, selfish, overly indulgent life. Dear God. And when our conscience says, you're not godly here and you never will be or God doesn't love you or you have no salvation, we know that we can go to the Holy Spirit and we can pray. And the Holy Spirit can help us overcome our conscience. The conscience is great. We talked about this before. 
Your conscience is necessary. It is beautiful. It is the thing that tells you when you've done something wrong. Guilt is good. Guilt tells you when you're not right and that you need to readjust. Shame is good. Shame is the emotions that you feel that drive you to God. The problem is not those feelings. The problem is when you wallow and dwell in them without any kind of remedy. And so the second assurance is that when we have this desire to go to the Holy Spirit and pray and remedy our conscious convictions, our guilt, our shame, and we can go to him and the shame and the guilt drives us to him, but then the Holy Spirit deals with that guilt and shame so it doesn't own us, but then at the same time he doesn't alleviate us from our guilt and the responsibility and he begins to transform us, giving us the desire and the ability to actually do better next time. And so the second assurance is this desire to go to God, this desire to be in prayer, the desire to do something about our guilty conscience. Not only do you have this increasing desire to have fellowship with the believers and love them, but you have this increasing desire to pray to the Holy Spirit and seek his repentance or seek his forgiveness and seek his transformation and seek, I don't want to drive by that person again next time. Give me the ability to do it. And that should be your prayer. I, I really truly believe that the two keys, the two keys to a successful, faithful Christian life is one, the first one is rooted in Deuteronomy. Remember. The more that you remember who God is and what he's done for you, which means immersing yourself in the word of God and immersing yourself in prayer, the more likely you are to act in that. If you spend more time consuming the things of the world and consuming your own desires, you're not going to be thinking about God that much, and then don't be surprised that you're not faithful and committed to him when you need to be. When, when all hell breaks loose in your life and your immediate default is not to go to God, or when you feel like you've done something wrong, your immediate default is not to go to God, or when you're sitting alone and you don't know what to do and your immediate default is not to go to God, that is because you're not in him and you're not remembering him. You're not marinating yourself and who he is and what he's done. And that's why the first testament is so important. The first testament is so important to constantly reread the stories of God's actions and words to remind myself of who he is so that I'm more likely to default in him when things go wrong or when I'm lonely or when I'm distracted or whatever. Remembrance is the key. But the one that John's highlighting here, and the second one is that submission to the Holy Spirit. The more likely you remember God, the more likely you are to say, Dear God, I cannot do this. You have to do it for me. To start every morning and say, I can't do this. You've got to do it for me. I can't tell you, for a while, I actually had an alarm that would go off on my phone to remind me how to do this because habits don't just happen overnight. Some people are like, oh, that's so pathetic, you need an alarm. It's like, no, I care enough that I set alarm in order to create a habit so that eventually I'd outgrow the alarm. And so I had an alarm that reminded me as I was pulling into my driveway or my garage coming home from work to say a quick prayer of just like, I'm exhausted, I'm tired, and I'm overwhelmed, and as an introvert, all I want to do is crawl in a hole and be alone, and I'm about ready to go into a house with three wound-up children who have taxed my wife terribly, and I'm going to have to take all that little energy that is left and be there for all of them. Dear God, not me, but you. And I can't tell you, that's like, and now it's the same thing, like before they come in, now I take them home, so that time's gone. <laughs> but now it's... There's a few minutes before they walk into my classroom at the end of the day and I take them home and now I, I pray it in that moment. And sometimes I succeed and sometimes I don't, but I'm succeeding more and more with every year that goes by. And, they, and I, that's, that is the prayer. That is the key. I have seen a difference. I've seen times that my rage has been boiling me and I'm about ready to yell at them. And I'm like, oh, dear God, I cannot do this. The words that are about ready to come out are going to be scary. And all of a sudden this peace... I cannot explain just comes over me and everything just drains out and I'm able to come and speak to them like God speaks to them but that's not my default 
That is not my default. And then that's the key. That's the key when you notice that more and more and more you have this desire to go to God and say, Dear God, help me. Only you can. Not my will be done, but yours. Even Jesus in the garden was like, I don't want to die. I spent the last 33 years watching crucifixions on the side of the road. I don't want to do that. I don't want to go there. But not my will. Your will be done. Give me the ability to follow through. And so that's the second mark of assurance, is when you find that desire to do it, the acceptance that only the Holy Spirit can give you the ability, and then the more continuous habitual pattern of actually doing it. And remember, it's not a light switch on or off. It's a progression. It's a growth. You don't take your two-year-old and say, today is trigonometry. You start them with counting. And then you grow. And you grow. Verse 21. Dear friends, if our conscience does not condemn us, we have confidence in the presence of God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing to Him. On the flip side, when we are walking in God, in those moments that we are right before God, that we are right before Him, that there is no sin, there is no unconfessed sin, there is no desire to hold on to that habitual sin, when we are right with God, then we know that we can expect to experience fellowship with God. We expect to know Him, to be blessed by Him, to to be guided by Him, all those fruits of the Spirit. And we talked about this in John. Jesus says, if you love me, then you will obey me. And if you obey me, then I'll go to the Father to to ask Him to reveal more of Himself to you. And then you will take that new revelation and you'll become obedient to it because you love him. And when you're obedient to that, then I'll go to the Father and ask him to reveal more of himself to you. And so if you feel like you haven't been hearing God lately or new things haven't been revealed to you or you're kind of stagnant, it might be because you're not obedient with what he's already given you. In those moments when you have your conscience convicting you, you know that you can go to the Holy Spirit and deal with that. But in the moments where you are right before God and you're not holding on to it, then you can know that you'll go to God and He will reveal more of Himself to you. And your fellowship will become deeper, more intimate. You'll experience the joy and the peace and the hope and the satisfaction and contentment that passes all understanding at a greater depth and a greater level. And hopefully you'll stay there longer. You'll stay there longer. And so this is our confidence. This is what we can rely on. We have confidence in the presence of God. Now, why would he mention this? Because unlike all the other gods of the other religions, you can't have that confidence. The Quran clearly teaches that even if you live a perfect life, Allah can still flick you off the bridge into the afterlife, into hell, if he feels like it. There is no guarantee. They do believe that it is possible to become so perfect that you don't sin anymore as a human. The Quran teaches that. But the Quran also teaches even if you achieve that and you live without sin, Allah can still flick you into hell when you die if he wants. The pagan gods, it has nothing to do with morality. It's all about offense. They're more like if you bump into them in the hallway, they're ready to beat the crap out of you. It's not a moral offense. It was just you, you wounded their pride. Buddhism, God is irrelevant. There is no assurance. Atheism, there is no God. There is no assurance. There is no other religion that if you are in pursuing that God and seeking to love him and seeking to be like him, that not only will he give you the power to become like him, the Holy Spirit, but that you also can have confidence that you are loved and accepted by him. There is no other religion. This is why Hebrews chapter 4 says that we can now boldly and confidently go to the throne, knowing that we will receive compassion from the Father, because Christ knows what it was like to live a life like us. 
There is no other religion. There is no assurance of salvation. There is no confidence in the presence of God if you're seeking and pursuing in any other religion. Nothing. And that's why John says this. Is, everybody can relate to guilt, whether you're a believer or not. But only the believer can relate to a God who's pleased with you. And you can have confidence and you have assurance. That's the beauty of this Christ and his Father. And whatever we ask, we will receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing to him. Then when you're in that moment, you know that whatever you ask, he'll give to you. Now, go back to the psalm that says, whatever you pray in his name, or Jesus says, whatever you pray, I'll give to you in my name. And then there's a psalm that says, delight in the Lord, and he will give you all the desires of your heart. Now, people like Joel Osteen love to quote the second part. He will give you all the desires of your heart, including the Lamborghini, the really good job, the health, wealth, and prosperity, right? A lot of people like to say, if you pray Jesus' name, like put the name in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer, you'll get what you want, right? Because you know that you'll receive whatever you want from him, and then you stop. But you have to read the second parts of those, the first part and the second part. And so the first one says, delight in him. Meaning I delight in him and who he is and what he says and how he thinks and what he wants. Jesus says, pray in my name. Name communicates character in the ancient world, and everybody knew that. Meaning that your prayers align to my character. And this says that when we keep his commandments. And so what these passages in Psalms and John and 1 John are saying is that the more that you're in Christ, the more that you'll be conformed to him, and therefore the things that you want are the things that he wants. You will no longer want the Lamborghini because that's not what Jesus wants. And so I delight in him. But the only way I can delight in God is I have to spend time with him. And the more I delight in him, the more I look forward to being with him. And the more I make sacrifices to be with him. And then the more that I'm with him, the more I become like him, right? Anybody who's ever had a really close friend that you've hung out with a lot, or a sibling, or a marriage partner, or whatever, eventually you start becoming like each other. And then when I pray and say, according to his character, and then when I pursue his commandments, it means that what begins to happen is my will becomes transformed to his will, conformed to his will. And the things that I desire are because they come from him. And I no longer desire the things of the world, or I desire them less and less. And so the things that I begin to pray for, and I know that whenever I'm in alignment with God, I will always get what I want, because what I want is what God wants for me, and he died on the cross to give me that. And I will find that I will pray less and less and less and less for a happy-go-lucky life and more for just peace and joy and fellowship and contentment and satisfaction. And that I'll be more content with those rather than the materialistic things of the world. And this is what John promises. This is what John promises. Because we do things that are pleasing to him. This is the commandment that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he gave us the commandment, and the person who keeps this commandment resides in God, and God in him. Now by this we know that God resides in us by the Spirit he has given us. And so John kind of repeats it all over again. This is a summary. The summary is this. We, this is the commandment. So he says, look, the first assurance is the more that you begin to look like God's love in the life of other believers... You're pursuing their good. That's an assurance that you belong to God. And the more that you have a prayer life with God, and the more that you want that, that's an assurance with God. Then when we're looking more and more like that, we'll get whatever we want when we pray, because we'll be like God and we'll be with God and be walking in sync with God. Because we're obeying His commandments. So then what is the commandment? The commandment is love your, believe, your fellow believers and love God by being in prayer with him. And so the, 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 the obedience 
and the getting what we want from God is the center part. But before that is we're loving our believer and we're loving God in prayer. And then we get what we want because we're in line with him, which then allows us to reflect the commandment, which is love God and love our fellow believers. That's what insyncs you or puts you in sync with God. And knows that they're mentioned in conjunction with each other. They're linked. Jesus says the greatest commandment is love God and love others. Sorry, love God. And the second is like it. Meaning, not second place, or if you want to get there, it means equal to it, linked to it, absolutely necessary. Because when you love the believers, you're loving God as well. When you love my children, you're loving me. There are people that have loved on my children that I've never met, but I feel loved by them because they loved on my children. And this is what he's saying. So the question is, that John keeps emphasizing the love of your fellow Christian and doesn't really talk about like loving like your just any old neighbor who may be a believer or not believer. And is that because of just the particular audience that he has? And the, the answer is yes, but it's also bigger than that. And the idea is that if you can't even love the people who are more like you than anybody else, how are you going to love anybody else? Like, right? Loving people is difficult. I mean, even your spouse, even after years and years and years of being married to them, becoming more and more like each other and having more and more things in common with each other, it's still hard to love them, right? And so it's basically saying you have more in common with the believers than you do with anybody else. You have the same God, which is the most important thing in your entire life. You have the same goal to be pleasing to him, to be transformed, to be evangelizing people, to be heaven-oriented, which you don't share that with anybody else. You have the same spirit inside of you, transforming you and guiding you, that you don't share with anybody else. And if you can't love them, how in the world are you going to love the world? And I think that's what John is saying, is this is the starting point. This is the starting point. And then the second reason I think he's emphasizing that is, and that's the only thing that will attract the world. Because it's the world who's looking at us and says, why would I want to become part of that when you can't even love each other? Yeah, you might make me feel loved, and that's really cool, but then you want me to convert and step into that community of believers, and that community of believers don't even love each other right? I don't care that you're loving for me. If, if I'm experiencing lots of love from you right now by being outside the church, then I'll just stay there, <laughs> right? I think the idea here is like, this is a starting point. You have to first be able to love because the world's already hating you and you have nothing in common with them. And you have to love your fellow believer. And then that is what attracts the world to leave the world and join the community and actually become a part of it. And then that's what allows the truly the, the 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 prodigal or the parable of the good Samaritan, then that love then allows you to overflow into that random stranger that is down the road. Does that kind of make sense? Good question. <laughs>